You are about to listen to the full interview with Dr. Christopher French. Sections of it were originally included in our Skinwalker Ranch episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen. It'll provide context for this interview. Dr. French is Emeritus Professor and Head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths University of London. He explores paranormal stories and phenomena through a skeptical lens, believing that most have a non-paranormal explanation. We spoke with him about why people are drawn to the paranormal and what his thoughts are on Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, well, I am a prof- well, Emeritus Professor uh, Chris French. Um, I retired a couple of years ago from the psychology department at Goldsmiths, University of London. Um, I'm still staying on as emeritus, and uh, I head the anomalistic psychology research unit at Goldsmiths. Uh, And anomalistic psychology is essentially the psychology of weird stuff. Um, So it typically takes a fairly skeptical approach insofar as the main emphasis is on seeing if we can come up with non-paranormal explanations for what appear to be paranormal events and experiences uh, and wherever possible put those explanations to the test and see if we can produce evidence in support of those non-paranormal explanations. And what, uh, what motivated you to get in to the field of anomalistic psychology? I used to believe in a lot of this stuff. I mean, right, the, you know, well into early adulthood, I believed in a lot of these kinds of claims. I was just kind of interested. I think the same reasons that anybody's interested in this stuff, because it just is inherently fascinating. It makes, you know, it, it's, it's kind of exciting. It's mysterious. Um, it's something which I think, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, people kind of find interesting and enjoy talking about this stuff. But it was only uh, when I was doing my PhD, which was on a completely different topic, much, much more respectable science I used to do in those days. <laughs> now I'm going to the weird stuff. Um, but uh, someone recommended a particular book to me that they just they thought I'd enjoy. It was called Parapsychology, Science or Magic. It was by a Canadian psychologist called James Alcock. And uh, it was the first kind of sceptical treatment of this kind of topic that I'd ever come across. And I not only greatly enjoyed the book, but I found uh, Alcock's arguments pretty convincing. And I just liked the general approach. And so that really marked the kind of transition for me from being generally a believer in a lot of this stuff to to becoming a skeptic. And and then it was really kind of... as a, as a hobby for many years, I was interested in, I discovered there was a skeptical literature out there if you knew where to look. Um, I started to subscribe to skeptical magazines and it really wasn't until I came to start at Goldsmiths, that was back in 1985, a long time ago, that I did a couple of lectures on this and then it became a full module on the on the uh, uh, degree course. Um and started to do little bits of research, and that graduate that grew and grew, and so from those tiny acorns, now you know this is pretty much what I do full time. I'm, I'm interested in these things. You have to be slightly weird yourself to to be interested in stuff that you don't actually believe in. But uh, I think I think these kinds of claims 
they are an important part of the human experience. People do have weird experiences. There's no doubt at all about that. So what's going on? Is it genuinely paranormal or are there other explanations? If there are other explanations, that's telling us something really important about how the human mind works. So either way, it's worth taking seriously. So starting as a believer and moving into a skeptic, do you find that you're still able to enjoy a good ghost story? Or do when you hear something like that now, is it does your skeptic mind kick in? And is it hard to maybe engage in some of those uh, paranormal stories you may have you may have believed before? It's, it depends. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, as far as fiction goes, I have no objection whatsoever to the paranormal. You know, it was it was good enough for Shakespeare. It was good enough for Dickens. Who am I to complain? You know, um, and I, you know, I certainly enjoy watching uh, a good ghost story on TV or uh, you know, reading reading a good ghost story. Um, it's what, when things are being presented as fact that I strongly suspect are not fact, <laughs> then. Uh, that's something which, you know, does, does tend to irritate me. But I mean, a lot of the kind of reports that you get about ghost stories are coming from people who genuinely and sincerely believe what they're saying. And from a psychologist's point of view, that's interesting. As I said before, was it something genuinely paranormal or is it telling us something about the way the human mind works? So actually, yeah, maybe let's take a step back. And how do you define paranormal? Because I think that word's used pretty encompassing this day, these days for a lot of different... Um phenomena but how do you define paranormal uh, I mean, paranormal is one of those kind of words that people bandy about a lot without being very clear about the definition and when you try to come up with a clear definition it's actually really difficult to do but uh, i mean the, the kind of go-to definition for me would be something which is beyond explanation in terms of currently accepted scientific ideas. Throughout your book, you provide some examples of different uh, famous cases and events related to the paranormal. Which cases have you looked at throughout the years that you find the most interesting? Are there any cases that you think are still challenging and hard to explain in terms of anomalistic psychology? I think, I mean, inevitably, so it's not going to be the case that anybody can, uh, certainly any, any skeptic of the paranormal, um, would be able to give you definitive, conclusive explanations for every single uh, paranormal claim in case it's ever, there's ever arisen. Uh, I mean, one reason for that is that often sceptics are not actually welcome to investigate these things because people want them to be paranormal. They don't want a kind of professional wet blanket coming in and coming up with non-paranormal explanations. Um, but secondly, I mean, you just couldn't do that. You know, that one, of the, one of the issues here is, of course, you're typically dealing with people's reports of what happened. Not always. Sometimes you might have some kind of objective recording equipment that was available at the time, but usually you're dealing with people's reports of what happened. Um, And that's different to actually being present at the time and to being able to investigate things at the time. Uh, We know that... Human memory is unreliable. Eyewitness testimony can be very unreliable. Having said all that, I mean, I think there are some cases which are much more skeptics than others. I mean, the Rendlesham Forest UFO case in in the UK is is one of my favourites, simply because there was kind of there are are lots of different elements to it, Um, and I think with a lot of the classic paranormal cases, what you find is there is not just one single explanation. There may be just by chance happen to be two or three different factors all coming into play around at the same time in the same place, which you so if a skeptic 
explains one element, people say, yeah, but that doesn't explain this over here, does it? So fine, just accept that for those classic cases, that's, that is going to be the case. For those really hard to explain cases, there's going to be more than one factor coming into play. Um, and, and, you know, why, why wouldn't that happen? You would expect that to happen occasionally. If there's, a, if there's one very single, obvious, alternative, non-paranormal explanation, well, it won't become a classic case then. Do you believe there's any ethical considerations when working in anomalistic psychology, um, especially when you're working with individuals who maybe really believe they've experienced something pretty profound? There are absolutely ethical implications because, I mean, I, I sometimes get sent um, emails from people who may be distressed by what they're experiencing. Now, I should emphasize, I'm not a clinical psychologist. Obviously, I, I know a fair amount about clinical psychology, but I'm not a clinical psychologist. I don't have the expertise to uh, try to evaluate whether or not um, this person might need professional psychiatric or psychological help. Uh, and so that can be a bit of an issue for me. On the one hand, I don't think it'd be very helpful to uh, come across as being just a kind of totally dogmatic skeptic saying, well, you know, this definitely can't be happening. You know, you pull yourself together. That's not going to help anybody. On the other hand, I don't want to direct, direct someone onto someone else who is a confirmed believer who will come in and say, oh, yes, your house is definitely haunted. You know, you've got ghosts coming out of the out of the rafters here. Because <laughs> um, that's not going to help them either. What, what you need is somebody who has the appropriate training in counselling or clinical psychology or <laughs> psychiatry who will help them to deal with the emotional impact it's having without necessarily taking a position one way on the, or the other regarding whether it, it's paranormal. Um now, I mean, sometimes I can directly help people because one of my main uh, research interests is the phenomenon of sleep paralysis, which you're, you're probably familiar with. But if, if, if any of your listeners are not, um, it's a fairly common experience that people have uh, between sleep and wakefulness where for a short period of time, typically, uh, you realize you can't move. And that's it in its most basic form. It's a little bit disconcerting, but it's no big deal. But it can be accompanied by other symptoms like a very strong sense of presence or, or hallucinations of various kinds. You might actually see kind of figures in the room or demons and whatever. It can be absolutely terrifying. Now, if somebody sends me an account and I read it and I think, well, this sounds like a classic case of sleep paralysis, I think I can help that person by sending them a, a chapter of paper or two about sleep paralysis so that they know that there is this thing called sleep paralysis. It's a hallucinatory experience. doesn't make it any less terrifying, but to be able to say to people, look, it's not real. I know it's incredibly scary, but it's not real. I think it's a helpful response. Um, so the, the ethics, you know, you do need to tread carefully here. And I, I am somewhat... Um, I'm not always happy with the ethics of these uh, in paranormal investigation teams who go in and announce that, you know, yes, your, your, your house is haunted or there's a demon or there's an evil presence and so on. I'm not sure that is actually helping people. How do you think individuals who are interested in paranormal can approach these subjects and claims in a critical and scientifically grounded way that's not maybe going to send people off in a direction that maybe could end up being harmful to them psychologically? It's a difficult one. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I, 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 people have the right to 
to go and do various... I mean, I think, again, probably make a distinction between um, people who go into you know, reputedly haunted sites that maybe even kind of invite that kind of investigation in, you know, whether it's some kind of very old building or, um, you know, I mean, I mean, in, in the UK, for example, you know, the number of haunted pubs that we've got and stately homes and so on, you know, we've got them coming out of our ears. Um, and if, if those establishments want to invite in uh, paranormal investigation teams to come and spend the night there, I don't think that raises any particular, particularly difficult ethical issues. I mean, it's not completely free of them, but I don't think it raises any serious ones. I think going into private homes where, you know, and then, and then kind of coming to, to the, the verdict, oh, yes, your house is haunted. Uh, that is much more dangerous. Now, again, with respect to the, the people who uh, do those kinds of investigations, I'd make a huge distinction from, a, from an ethical point of view between um, those who are sincere and genuine in what they're doing um, and those, and we know they're out there, these people, who are actually basically into it for as a money-making uh, scheme and maybe even go to the length of actually faking stuff you know, to give people a better show. I mean, that clearly is, is for me, that's crossing a kind of an ethical line there. Um, I've been on kind of lots of, you know, lots of ghost hunts. And uh, I'm sure if you've done this yourself, Ray, you know, you'll be aware of the fact that typically very, very little happens. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you know then that nobody's faking anything. And that would, you know, if anything did happen, you might have a little bit more faith in it. Yeah, I mean, basically just try and look for as many possible explanations of a non-paranormal nature as you can. I mean, I, I kind of now get more of a kick out of coming up with, you know, some possible non-paranormal explanation for these kind of cases than, than, than a lot of people would get out of seeing a real ghost, you know, or what at least that's what they perceive that they've experienced. But again, as I said before, um, I think informed skeptics are, a, you know, a very they're a very weird bunch of people, and I, you know, happily put myself in, in with that group. How do you explain the allure <clears throat> for paranormal beliefs and why do you think people are drawn to it? Especially when I think a lot of the times having these beliefs can be, to your point earlier, like it can be kind of frightening if someone believes that their house is haunted. So why are we so interested in these stories and why are we so interested in trying to, yeah, what draws people to them? I, think, I mean, I think for one thing, at a very superficial level, it's kind of exciting, it's thrilling. You know, why do people go and see horror movies? that they know they're going to find scary. Why do people go on roller coasters? Although it's kind of scary, there is also, you know, there's also a kind of thrill there that people enjoy as well. But obviously not everybody enjoys it. People can be, can be genuinely terrified if they believe that their own house is haunted and that things are happening that they don't understand. The reason for the kind of fascination, I mean, I, my own research tends to focus a lot on various cognitive biases, various kind of glitches in the way that we think and we process information about the world around us uh, that might lead us to think we've had a paranormal experience when maybe there are alternative explanations. But I think just as important is the emotional side, the motivational side. Now, when it comes to ghosts, although we may find ghosts kind of a negative, frightening thing as a general concept, 
it does supply some evidence that death is not the end. And I think that that is something that virtually all of us would like to believe, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the idea of your own mortality is something that we generally are not very happy about. And we're certainly not very happy about the prospect that when our loved ones die, that's it, we'll have no further contact with them at all. So all of those kind of paranormal beliefs that relate to the possibility of life after death, I think we're strongly motivated to find any evidence that seems to support that because we want it to be true. And the, the single most pervasive cognitive bias that affects us all, believers and skeptics alike, is confirmation bias. If evidence is around that appears to support what we either already believe is true or what we want to be true, it doesn't necessarily have to be very high quality for us to accept it. Whereas any evidence that appears to contradict our beliefs, we will kind of examine more critically and think of reasons to either ignore it or not even maybe notice it in the first place. So uh, that, that motivational side comes in. I mean, when it comes to things like UFOs, again, if aliens do exist and are visiting the Earth on a regular basis, you know, that tells us something very profound about our place in the universe, over and above the sheer just excitement at the prospects of UFOs and aliens. You know, and I share that. I love science fiction. But further implications, I can't remember word for word the, the Arthur C. Clarke uh, quotation on this, but it's something along the lines of, you know, there are only two possibilities. Either we are alone in the universe or we're not. And they're both equally frightening prospects, you know, but, but it tells us something really important about our place in the universe. As a skeptic, kind of what are your general views and perceptions of the story I sent you about Skinwalker Ranch? Kind of what's your first take on reading what I sent you and, and kind of what's your impression? I've obviously did a little bit of reading around. I looked at the links that you sent me and I, I kind of tried to find a little bit more information. And the one thing that really comes across to me is how how the, the, the distinct lack of evidence for anything unusual actually going on there. And by that, I don't mean just anecdotal reports from witnesses that may or may not be reliable. If these things were, you know, were happening on such a regular basis, there's, there's a very marked paucity of any objective evidence. You know, one or two claims that things have been caught on camera and so on and so forth. But these things were supposed to be happening kind of so often it should have been very easy when you know, a team of investigators went in there to actually record some evidence of this. And it just isn't there. So I think, to be honest, my overall conclusion was the whole thing seemed to be rather hyped up. And uh, I'm not convinced, really, that much was happening there at all. And that's the thing that sticks out to me about this one so much is because it's been around for a really long time. There's a ton of interest in it, just in pop culture and just kind of in general paranormal cycle uh, circles. And yet there is really nothing. I mean, even... Even the original witnesses, it's all secondhand stories from them. So I guess like with that in mind, like why why do you think this story has so much interest and lives on as long as it has? Like what what is it that is so attractive to people and, and why would why this rather than some other story that someone may have told somewhere else to stand out so much in pop culture? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it is probably down to the to the way that it's packaged and presented. You know, I mean, if you've got TV programs being made about this stuff, and if you've got a book there, and you've got people who are pushing this, and very often 
the kind of prime movers in terms of uh, you know presenting interesting tidbits to the to the to the general public and particularly to the people who are interested in this stuff. It's all kind of very often kind of promise of just a jam tomorrow. You know, there's going to be a big announcement on this. We've made this major breakthrough that we're going to be we're going to be revealing to the world very soon. But it never that that moment never actually seems to arrive. I'm happy to accept that. I may be wrong. Maybe aliens really are visiting the Earth on a on a regular basis. But I'll actually believe that when there's when the when the, the proof is there, when the evidence is there. You know, it doesn't have to be a a, a flying saucer on the on the White House lawn. But uh, that would be good. <laughs> but uh, you know, some kind of concrete proof that it's really happening. I'd be incredibly excited if that was happening. Um, but. Yeah, there's just no evidence there at all. Another consideration for me is the fact that these days, even, uh, you know, ordinary people, everybody goes around pretty much with a, a very good quality camera in their pockets wherever they go. Um, and anything unusual that was happening ought to be caught by several people from different angles. That would be really strong proof. But you typically don't get that, you know, and I have to say that on, the, on those odd occasions where somebody presents some evidence that looks like that, then obviously it takes a little bit longer to debunk. It often turns out to be something that's been produced by readily available software that can produce very convincing looking fakes. It's more difficult to debunk that stuff. And, you know, um, it may be that uh, eventually somebody will catch something definitive on the, on their mobile phones, but it just doesn't happen. And with respect to Skinwalker Ranch, it just seems to be next to nothing, despite all that investment of, of resources, time, money. There seems to have been very, very little payback. So from your point of view, with this, the claims being made at Skinwalker Ranch, what evidence would you need to see? I know you mentioned there's no photos, but if you saw a photo of something from Skinwalker Ranch, would you believe it? And so like, and if not, kind of what level of, of evidence would you need to be convinced that there was the claims are supported from that, the story? I mean, it would, again, it would depend very much on, on the, on the, on the nature of the kind of evidence. If it was um, video evidence or, uh, or, or uh, film, um, then I wouldn't, I, I would, I confess, I wouldn't immediately say, oh, well, right, that's it, then I was wrong. <laughs> would wait for uh, somebody with more expertise in analyzing, especially fake footage. I mean, because, you know, we know that happens. The whole history of photography and uh, is, is bound up with the history of psychical research right from the year dot. Um, and we know that there's a lot of there's a lot of fakes out there, but if we could get good evidence um, that that you know that people who know about this stuff would actually say yes, this doesn't appear to be fake, preferably not just a one-off. It would be nice, you know, as I kind of intimated before, if you got uh, some evidence kind of caught from several different cameras at different angles, and it's all at the same time, so on and so forth. You'd ruled out any possible other explanations to say what a, a UFO sighting might be, um, you know, then I would take that at least very seriously. Ideally, of course, you know, actual communication with some kind of alien life form would be, uh, would be the icing on the cake, but maybe, maybe that's not going to happen. But um, yeah, I, I'm kind of open to being convinced if the evidence is good enough. And it's, you know, one thing about uh, UFOs, as opposed to, to ghosts and claims relating to life after death, is that 
arguably, it, whereas some claims relating to life after death would really need the scientific worldview to be drastically revised because it just, you know, there's no room in our current understanding from a materialistic science point of view for things like souls and spirits and so on. Um, aliens, yes, I mean, there could be aliens. I mean, if it happens, I'd, I'd go along with those people who, you know, based on things like Drake's equations, think that it's very likely there is intelligent mm -hmm. life out there. The big question is, is it visiting the Earth? Uh, and that's where I'm not convinced. Reading reading the book about the story and hearing interviews with people who say they've had experiences at this location, a lot of the times the explanation they give for why there is no evidence is that this is some intelligence that is able to avoid being captured as hard evidence on photographs, video, um, whatever measuring devices they may have. Kind of what's your response to that um, claim that there's an intelligence that can just avoid capture of evidence? Well, it turns into a non-falsifiable hypothesis, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, which, um, in scientific terms, is <laughs> not great. If, if you've got this ready get-out for a complete lack of evidence, I mean, there's other there's other claims, obviously, that there is some kind of conspiracy, possibly involving mm -hmm. you know the government. Um, but again, it's a very kind of convenient way to explain the complete lack of evidence, or even evidence that seems to count against your paranormal hypothesis, well, that's, been, that's misinformation, disinformation that's been put there by the conspirators. So, you know, it, it, it just, re I, I think basically, it, it, it's, it's not a very convincing line of argument. Um, how come people, you know, if people can see things with their eyes, that implies that, you know, there is, there is light that's hitting their retina, that light should also affect a camera. Um, it's very convenient that people can argue, oh, well, it just doesn't. You know, it's, uh, I don't find that convincing. I think there's clearly some paranormal beliefs that can be pretty harmless in somebody's life and some that actually can be harmful. Where do you rate Skinwalker Ranch and if someone believes in the story? Is there danger in believing the story or is this kind of just a harmless, a harmless fun story that's out there? I think with a lot of these, if you say look at a lot of these kind of cases on an individual level, very often it's the case that individually there doesn't seem to be that much harm if somebody wants to believe that you know some particular location is being visited by aliens. They don't seem to do much other than kind of fly around in the air and then disappear again, or you know they're not kind of um, doing much else. That's in itself not too much of a worry. The worry is that a lot of the kind of baggage that comes with that, because, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, belief in conspiracy theories, and, and conspiracy theories are kind of rife within the world of ufology, as you'll be very well aware. What we know from studying the psychology of belief in conspiracies is that, that one of the best predictors of whether you believe in conspiracy X, that there's something happening at Skinwalker Ranch that's being covered up by men in black or government officials or whatever else it may be, you're also very likely to believe in conspiracy why that vaccines are being used to try to take over people's minds and you know, or whatever else. Um, and so going down that rabbit hole of believing in conspiracy theories that some of which in themselves may be fairly harmless, it's, it's a kind of gateway drug to other conspiracies that are far from harmless, both from the for the individual and for wider society. Um, and that's 
that's really where the danger lies. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, in, in and of itself, I don't think that people who take the reports from Skinwalker Ranch seriously are going to suffer any great damage from doing so. But the, as I say, the danger is that they're also likely to all to be much more predisposed to believing other conspiracies because you know well if the government can do that they can lie to us about that they can lie to us about this as well and then yeah it's good to question governments we should all question governments but they don't always lie sometimes what they tell us is the truth for people who are interested in in stories like this and the paranormal what are some ways that they can arm themselves to still maybe digest the media and enjoy it but also not get pulled into a place where they may start to believe some of these more dangerous conspiracy theories I think, at the very least, um, I would say this, wouldn't I, but kind of read some of the sceptical literature so that, you know, you may decide that the, uh, having having read some of it, well, you just don't find it convincing. You, you continue to believe in all kinds of other paranormal stuff, but at least give it a chance. It might convince you. Um, uh, you know, that the, there are... There is a sceptical literature out there. I think it's a bit more visible now than it was when I first took an interest in this stuff. Um, but it's still very much, you know, the, the number of pro-paranormal, uncritical books on UFOs, on ghosts, on alternative medicine vastly outnumber the, the sceptical books, and they, they, they generally sell better. I suppose on, on that note, I, sh- I should take the opportunity to kind of... Uh, of my own book that's coming out next year from MIT Press, so look out for it in the shops, folks, um, with the very naughty title of The Science of Weird Shit. Um, but basically, it's, it's, a, it's a popular science book on anomalistic psychology. Um, it's got all my corny dad jokes in there, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 got some, it's got a lot of anecdotal stuff mixed in with the with the more scientific stuff, but I hope it's kind of a, a reasonably entertaining read. For someone looking to take their first steps into the world of skeptic literature um, and resources, where are some good starting places for people to, to dig in? Obviously, other than your books. <laughs> well, I mean, there is nowhere else to be perfect on this, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I've got, I've, there's so many good books out there. Um, I mean, I remember kind of when I first got into skepticism, being genuinely excited at reading all this stuff, coming across this stuff for the first time. Because it's a, it's a very, very entertaining um, area. You know, you've got on the one hand um, stuff like the, the, the techniques that deliberate con artists can use to convince people they've got psychic powers. Um, you've got all the kind of psychology behind people, why people might sincerely believe they've got psychic powers when maybe they haven't. But you've also got the kind of um, totally you know, profound issues like do we survive bodily death? What is our place in the universe and so on and so forth so when i first got into this area um i kind of i, I did like the stuff by james randy i mean flim flam is is one of my all-time favorite books uh james alcock's book as i've already mentioned some of the you know, writings by ray hyman various with you richard wiseman sue blackmore um all of those would be worth reading in my view um, and, and people are still kind of coming out with, um, with, with really good books, you know, every, every year there'll be two or three more coming out. Uh, recently, David Robert Grimes' book, The Irrational Ape, 
Um, yeah, there's lots and lots of others, but uh, um, I mean, there's also magazines, Skeptical Inquirer, Skeptic, etc., etc. There are blogs, there are podcasts. Yeah, so even the believers should dip a toe into the water occasionally of scepticism and see whether there's anything there they like. Does anomalistic psychology help explain like mass experiences by people, maybe groups of people who may have a religious experience or a group of people who may see something at the same time that they believe is paranormal? Well, yeah. Again, that can either be like the kind of mass experiences that you just referred to, so like Marian apparitions, all that kind of stuff. I mean, what you typically find in those that particular context is that you know, people are very, very hyped up. They, they want to experience something. They want to be part of what they think is this amazing kind of spiritual experience. And even then, you will typically find that if you talk to different people after the event, some people might say they saw amazing things like you know, the, the sun flying around in the sky or the Virgin Mary appearing and so on and so forth. So, and other people who were there, so, uh, I, didn't, I didn't see anything. <laughs> you know? um, um, so, you know, maybe some people are just more spiritually attuned than others, or maybe some people have better imaginations than others, you know. Um, but yeah, there are, we've done some research ourselves looking at um, something called the memory conformity effect, which is the way that one person's account of some unusual experience Oh, well, any experience for that matter, uh, or any event, one person's account can influence a co-witness's memory. Um, and so they end up both reporting they, that they've seen the same thing when, you know, if you've got one person who's very, very confident, but actually mistaken in their description of what happened, that can contaminate another person's memory. Um, and we've, as I say, done kind of like controlled experiments looking at factors like that. So Skinwalker Ranch eventually was turned into a reality show that I believe is still running to this day. How do you think having a show, a reality show on a channel like History Channel about this topic either hurts or helps the case that there is true paranormal phenomenon happening? I, I don't personally think it helps the case. Um, obviously, people, there's a very, very strong financial motivation to to keep the story going at all costs. Inevitably, you're going to have some people who will be tempted to just basically make stuff up. But also, you're you're encouraging people any kind of slightly anomalous experience they have. You know, ever since records began, people have looked up in the sky and sometimes they see things and they don't know what they are. Literally unidentified flying objects. It doesn't mean ET necessarily, but we all immediately make that connection now. It's quite interesting that we do. Um, but if, you, if you're basically on the lookout for anything that might be anomalous, you know, a patch of flattened grass, might that be where a UFO landed? Well, yeah, well, it might be, but it might also be where a cow's laying down. It could be a lot of things, you know. If you, as I say, if you... If you're in a situation where you go in desperate to find anomalies and on the lookout for them, then any ambiguous kind of stimulus is interpreted in terms of that paranormal context, even though, in fact, there may be much more mundane explanations. Do you think anomalistic psychology can be applied outside of kind of our modern paranormal stories to even the development and persistence of like ancient myths and folklore throughout human history? Well, yeah, I think so in many ways. I mean, uh, you know, one of the 
factors that runs through one of the uh, themes, I should say, that runs through anomalistic psychology is the fact that we are we we're, we search for meaning. We we try to make sense of the world around us, of what's going on around us, and you know, obviously, that's a very very good thing. But we sometimes see patterns in what's actually randomness. We sometimes see meaning and significance where we shouldn't. We sometimes overplay it. So although on the one hand, obviously, that that drive to make sense of the world around us is the, the very drive behind science and, and our scientific understanding of the universe, it's also uh, the driver behind us sometimes thinking that we, we see things and meaning as it is when it isn't really there. So it's the same drive behind belief in conspiracy theories, uh, behind a lot of paranormal beliefs where, you know, people are putting two and two together, but they're making five. But if, if, if it gives us an explanation, if it gives us a narrative, so all those kind of creation myths and so on, um, it, it makes sense there. But, I mean, another of the biases that people have studied both within anomalistic psychology and in other contexts is something called the intentionality bias, or sometimes I think Michael Shermer calls it agenticity. Uh, the idea that when something happens out there in the world, it happens because someone or something made it happen with a particular intention in mind. And there's good evidence that this is our kind of default mode. You know, we, we, uh, certainly as we grow up, we tend to kind of outgrow that, but it's still there underneath. So, you know, if, we, if there's a tapping sound, you know, it may be just a branch being blown against the window or it may be a burglar. Now, in terms of our evolutionary history, it makes sense that we've evolved brains that err on the side of thinking there's a potential threat there. And so that intentionality bias is not a, a million miles from that to thinking, oh, well, the crops have failed, or there's been a lightning strike, God's not happy, or a witch has caused that to happen. You know, a whole range of supernatural beliefs, a belief in spirits and gods and entities that we can't see that can, that can actually affect our lives. How does storytelling, I think particularly in the context of sharing paranormal experiences, serve as a coping mechanism, or even maybe as a means of self-expression for people? I think it gets back again to that need to to explain things. Um, you know, we take an awful lot for granted in our everyday waking lives because most of it doesn't really need any kind of great explanation. We're used to, you know, the way things work. We know how to behave if we walk into a restaurant or a shop. And, you know, most of that doesn't really take any any great processing. It's just day-to-day -day life. It's only when something kind of unusual or anomalous something needs explaining, then we pay attention to it. We try to, you know, we, we want to try to, uh, to to explain it in some way. Um, and whereas you know, some people have a, a kind of a stronger desire for there to be explanations in terms of unseen forces and, you know, the spirits that all the that whole kind of uh, the whole kind of paranormal view of, of the way things work, others are more inclined and to to try to go with naturalistic explanations. And yes, as I'm, and I'm an example myself. You know, I've gone from one way of thinking about the world to to another one. If anything, I've you know I've kind of written about this. I used to be a believer when I first discovered the joys of skepticism. I think I held some views that were 
much more negative about paranormal beliefs than I now hold. I've kind of come back towards the middle ground. And I'm always, always, I should put this on my gravestone, yeah, I'm always saying I could be wrong. Yeah, I am open to new evidence coming along that will convince me. But for the time being, I am still on this side of skepticism. You know, as we as we move more into the modern age and we are armed so much more with like recording devices like cameras and audio devices that should be able to capture this this phenomena but seems to continuously not produce very convinced convincing evidence. Do you think that people's belief in the paranormal will wane over time or do you think these stories will always be with us? I'm pretty convinced that belief in the paranormal will always be with us. I think the way that our brains have evolved makes us predisposed towards certain kinds of beliefs and interpretations of what's going on in the world around us. Um, and I basically, you know, to that extent, I think it's kind of, these, these predispositions are, are kind of hardwired in us. Um, we can train people to be more critical in their, in their approach, and that does have an effect. Um, but no, there will always be, I think, paranormal beliefs. There will always be religious beliefs. Um, people do take comfort from these beliefs. They do get something back psychologically positive from these beliefs, whether they're true or not. And then as a final question, any kind of just final thoughts or takeaways for people listening on the claims at Skinwalker Ranch that you think should be considered? When it comes to Skinwalker Ranch, um, I just have not seen any convincing evidence that there's anything um, that needs to be explained. There's, uh, that we, we've got kind of lots of anecdotal evidence um, from... Uh, sources that may or may not be reliable. There are certainly kind of factors that would lead people to uh, want to kind of keep this legend running. Um, but, you know, basically, my, the bottom line for me would be, well, just, just show me some hard evidence. And I, that doesn't seem to be there. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergei Cheramizinov.